good to sing together as a church. Thankful for uh, the song selection this morning. It has prepared us well that Christ is smitten, stricken, and afflicted on our behalf, and that uh, we have our sins paid for by the blood of Christ, and that we as a church can arise and go forth and uh, spread the gospel. Uh, my name is Brian, I'm one of the pastors of the church, and if you would join me in Acts chapter 5 for our sermon this morning, Acts chapter 5, we're going to be in verses 12 through 42 this morning in Acts chapter 5. We've been working our way through the book of Acts for the past several weeks, uh, and we will continue to do so for uh, the next several months, and so uh, look forward to this study together. The title for the sermon this morning from uh, the latter portion of Acts 5, title for the sermon this morning is The Life. The Life. Uh, it's, it's an interesting uh, name for us. You see the early church in the book of Acts is called by a few different things, right? And so uh, we get the church, we get a word that is used over and over again throughout the book of Acts, uh, and it is church. It is a word that is very regularly translated church, and so we see that. Uh, but it won't be until Acts chapter 11 that we see Christians being used to describe the followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, early on in the book of Acts, what we see instead is the way is very regularly used to describe the early Christians, the way. And then we get another one that we believe was used for the early church called the life, and we see an allusion to that in our passage this morning, the life. So this early, oh, you're the ones that are following the way, or oh, those are the group of people that are, that are participating in the life, and so they would be described in that way. And it's kind of interesting, we use something a little similar, albeit very different in our society, do we not? Sometimes we'll, we'll catch one another saying, ah, this is the life, right? What are we talking about when we say something like that? Usually it's a moment of relaxation. Usually it's a moment of comfort. Uh, hopefully you've been enjoying before this morning. Uh, this morning's weather was not good uh, by really any stretch of the imagination. But before that, for the past few days, it was beautiful weather, was it not? All right, it was nice and cool in the mornings, and then it would warm up and be very pleasant. Uh, you maybe needed a light jacket or maybe uh, just a long sleeve t-shirt or something like that. And uh, there's been a couple of times this week that I've found myself outside and been like, man, this is really nice. And maybe uh, even thought to myself, this is the life. This is very pleasant. But what we're going to see in our passage this morning is far different type of life, the life, than an idea of ease or an idea of comfort, far from a passing notion of relaxation, this is the life. But I pray that what you see as we walk through this passage in Acts chapter 5 is that this life of following Jesus is one that very much this life is a life that is worth living. It is a life that is full of joy in the midst of many different circumstances. This is the life. Pick it up with me in Acts chapter 5 starting in verse 12. Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. 
And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, We have found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us? But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging Him on a tree. God exalted Him at His right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about four hundred, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed, and it came to nothing." After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing 
that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. That is a powerful story. Whether you believe it or not, that is a powerful story. What we will find, I trust, is that it is true and it is to be emulated. My main proposition this morning is this life that we just read about, that you would embrace this life. That you would embrace this life. What we're going to see in the passage this morning are four aspects of this life. Four aspects of the, this life that I think you and I should all embrace. Four things that we need to be doing as a part of this life. We're going to see these four things. See the super, supernatural. Speak the words of this life. Scramble your accusers. Serve God rather than men. And then I'm going to conclude with a what may feel a little weird on the surface, but I'm going to write a letter to Gamaliel, or however we say his name. All right, I'm going to write a letter to him responding to his uh, encouragement to the council. So the first aspect of this life that I want us to embrace is that we would see the supernatural. See the supernatural. In verses 12 through 16, we see the supernatural. In verse 12, notice, signs and wonders were regularly done by the hands of the apostles. Now, there is a little note in here that shows that the apostles, the capital A apostles, Peter and James and John and the others, that there's something unique about the apostles that we can't exactly emulate, that we can't exactly copy. But understand that the supernatural is happening around the people of God. Also notice in 14, verse 14, that people were regularly being added to the number of the Lord. Both men and women, there's even people coming from towns outside of Jerusalem into Jerusalem. And they're seeing signs and wonders. People are being added to their number. They are seeing the supernatural all the time. There seems to be an assumption in our Western society, right? So in America and Europe and Western idealistic societies, there's an idea that the supernatural does not happen anymore or maybe even that the supernatural never happened in the past. You see, this is not a new idea that there's no supernatural, right? That idea that there's no supernatural is age old. It has been around for a long time. It's even here in our passage. Notice down in verse 17 that uh, the high priest rose up and all who were with him. And we find out who is with the high priest in this particular scene. And that is the party of the Sadducees. And if you're wondering who in the world are the Sadducees, I have a memory aid for you. Uh, I apologize, it's an old uh, youth pastor-ism or a uh, Southern Baptist preacher-ism, but the Sadducees are very sad, you see. Right? And so it helps you remember, you're like, oh, the Sadducees are very sad, you see. Why are they sad? Well, they're sad because they disavow. They, they do not believe in the supernatural. They do not believe in life after death. 
They do not believe that anything happens. We would call them today annihilationalists. Right? They believe that when you're dead, you're dead. There is nothing else after this life. And again, if, if you take on this belief system, it is a very sad belief system. There is nothing else after this life. When you die, you die. Now, the Sadducees have a bit of a problem because their belief system is that there is no supernatural, there is no miraculous, there's nothing after death. Certainly, there is no resurrection from death. So they have a problem because there's now a following of people who are following Jesus who was crucified and they're claiming rose from the dead. And if you believe in Jesus, you too can have eternal life with God. This is a problem for their belief system. If something looked supernatural, instead of seeing it for what it is, they would have to explain it away. And so we see that happening in our passage. But understand, for those of us who desire to be a part of this life, those of us who desire to be part of the Christian life, we are to be looking for and seeing the supernatural. We are supposed to be seeing and looking for things that cannot be explained just with you and I present here. Right? We're supposed to be looking for these things. We're supposed to be seeing these things happening in and among us. And I don't mean that we take up tricks and we call things supernatural that are not supernatural. But we who are Christians are in the business of being used by the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, to see amazing things happen. One of the best parts of our jobs as pastors and elders of this church is we conduct membership interviews. And in membership interviews, one of the biggest aspects of the membership interview is hearing the testimony of the person who desires to join in membership with this church. And we are trying to see if there is a credible profession of faith in Jesus Christ. It is a beautiful time. We are thankful to have heard many who are sitting in here your testimony of what life was like before you were a Christian, what happened that now you call yourself a Christian and you believe you are saved by God through Jesus Christ, and then what life has looked like since you have been a Christian. It is one of the most exciting aspects of our role as pastors and elders. We get to see genuine life change. We get to see supernatural things that have occurred in our lives. Last Sunday, we had the opportunity together to hear a testimony of a young woman who was baptized last week. I can assure you, she did not bring about that change on her own. Some of the rest of you, I can assure you, after getting to know you, that you did not bring that change about yourself. Those of you who have gotten to know me, you are assured that any positive change that has happened in my life is in spite of me, not because of me. And so we see that these are supernatural things. One of, the, one of the goals that we have as elders in the months to come is to have more opportunities for testimony in the life of our church so that we can see the supernatural that is happening all around us. For the time being, you're going to have to ask one another and you're going to have to take me at my word to an extent. I'm thankful that we get to see the supernatural I can assure you that in this church in just the past couple weeks and months and years, we have seen the supernatural. We have seen the embondaged being set free. 
We have seen addicts becoming clean. We have seen adulterers becoming faithful. We have seen the prideful being humbled. We have seen the weak being made strong. We have seen the fatherless getting fathers. We have seen sojourners joining with a family. It is happening all around us, the supernatural. But understand that we have to embrace this life. People in our passage are coming to the apostles. They are bringing the sick, and they are bringing the sick in faith that the supernatural can happen. They are coming believing that the supernatural is possible, and they are coming to the apostles believing that the supernatural is possible as God works through the apostles. To see these things happen, you and I have to get involved with people at a deeper level. What the apostles were doing, and a lot of times was very obvious to everyone who was around. They were seeing the lame begin to walk. They were seeing the blind begin to see. They were very outward and obvious things that could be seen. A lot of the supernatural things that are happening in our day and happening in and around the life of this church are things that happen over time and are only seen by those who stick out the difficult relationships and those who dig in to know someone closely enough to know the hurts and to know the sin and to see the supernatural redemption. So we've got to get in. We've got to persevere. When things don't happen in the timeline that we think they're going to happen, we don't give up. We patiently wait to see what God will do. And when God breathes on it, we are excited to see the supernatural. We must embrace this life. We must also understand that not everyone will embrace this life, of course. Not everyone thought that what Jesus was doing was good. Not everyone that uh, saw what the apostles were doing was good. I'll read again verses 17 and 18 about these Sadducees. The high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy and they arrested the apostles and they put them into the public prison. This brings us to the second thing we need to embrace as we embrace this life. Number two, we need to speak the words of this life. Speak the words of this life. Verses 17 through the first part of 21. Verses 17 through the first part of 21. Speak the words of life. What happens after they throw them in the public prison is honestly a pretty amazing scene. Right? So they're placed into the public prison and the doors are locked and guards are put at the doors and they're there and all of a sudden an angel frees the apostles and then the angel tells the apostles to go and to speak the words of this life in the temple and the apostles do it. I hope as you read the Bible for yourself that you read it trying to imagine some of these scenes. Right? This is an amazing scene that is here in this passage. I want you to think about the first paragraph for a moment. So there were these supernatural, miraculous things happening. It was happening all around. It was well known. It was so well known that people were coming from towns outside of Jerusalem. They were bringing the sick. They were bringing the lame and the blind. They were bringing them all to the apostles. They were laying them around the apostles. It also said there in verse uh, 
in verse 15, that they would just be near the apostles so that Peter's shadow might fall on them and they would be healed. These are supernatural things. Like everyone around is believing that the supernatural is happening, that miraculous things are happening. But understand that seeing supernatural things does not save anyone. Seeing miracles does not save anyone. There are words of this life. There is good news. There is the gospel. It is news and this news must be spoken of. There are words that we are to speak in this life. And so the angel frees them from prison and he does not say, go and do more miracles. We got the idea with the miracles. He says, speak the words of this life. There's a quote that for some reason pastors have like grabbed a hold of. It is attributed to Francis of Assisi. And it says this, Preach the gospel everywhere you go, and when necessary, use words. I'm curious, who has heard this quote? Quite a few people have heard this quote. Alright, good. Preach the gospel everywhere you go, and when necessary, use words. Again, it's attributed to Francis of Assisi, or it's attributed to the guy that they heard say it, and then realizing that it was... If you keep going backwards, it's attributed to Francis of Assisi. I had the opportunity recently, uh, literally in this past week, uh, in a class that I'm taking to hear about Francis of Assisi. Francis lived in the time of the Crusades. Not Not a high point in Christian history. The Crusades. During the Crusades, most so-called Christians thought that the way to make people who weren't Christians become Christians was to engage them in battle, physical battle, overtake their territory, and establish a quote-unquote Christian government that would force and require them all to take on the external trappings of Christianity. That was the context in which Francis lived. Engaged in actual battle, physical battle, trying to will and force people to become Christians. By the way, that doesn't make people Christians. That actually makes people fake Christians, uh, which is even more dangerous than leaving them as they are. Francis had a different plan. His plan, through much a sacrifice of his own, was to go across the lines of battle to the quote-unquote enemy, usually Muslims, and to speak the words of the gospel, how they could come to know a saving faith in Jesus Christ, and that they could repent of their sins and they could trust in Jesus. So through great sacrifice to himself, he would cross over the lines of battle and he would speak the words of life to the quote-unquote enemy. So if we think about this, if we think about this quote, make sure we understand it in its proper context. Francis, the guy who spoke it, what he was saying, if he even said it quite that way, he was saying, our actions must be bold and our words must be bold. He was not saying we do not need to speak or preach the good news. Just the opposite. He certainly spoke the boldness of following Christ with his actions, and he certainly used words. 
He must be understood of the context of how he lived it out. Brothers and sisters, we must speak the words of this life. It is great to be a part of a church. It is great to see God changing you and God changing those around you. But this life, if it is just life change and people just see the life change but don't hear the words that cause the life change, people will be led to believe some confusing things. People may be led to believe that we just have an easier life and that is why we're so joyful. Or they may think that we don't struggle with temptation the way that they do, and that's why maybe we don't sin quite as often or as egregiously. Or maybe they'll think that we just pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps like good Americans, and that's how we've been able to see change in our lives. But none of that is what happened to us if we're truly in Christ. What has happened to us is that God has gotten a hold of us and radically changed us and is changing us to become more and more like Jesus. So what are the words of this life? It's briefly in our passage, um, verses 29 through 32. But I'm going to summarize. Peter's kind of had some sermonettes just on repeat to this point in the book of Acts. So I'm just going to pull some common threads from all the sermonettes that Peter has proclaimed, uh, Peter and the other apostles with him, to this point at the end of Acts chapter 5. Number one, he has said that Jesus is the promised Savior of God. He's speaking primarily to a Jewish audience, so he claims that Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed one. He is the one promised from the Old Testament. In Acts chapter 2, he quotes the prophet Joel and attaches that to Jesus. He quotes uh, Psalms and, uh, and David and attaches that to Jesus and what is happening in Acts chapter 2. So Peter is very clear. Jesus is the promised Savior from God to save His people. Secondly, he says that Jesus was crucified by men, specifically the supposed people of God there in Jerusalem. So they say, look, you're trying to pin this uh, crucifixion of Jesus on us, and Peter responds, absolutely, because you killed Him. You killed Jesus. There's a bold statement, right? But the words of this life, that Jesus is, Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Savior of God. Jesus was crucified by sinful men. A third thing that he's been very clear about over and over again at this point in the book of Acts is that God raised Jesus from the dead. You can imagine Peter standing in front of a council of people, several of which are of the party of the Sadducees, that do not believe in a resurrection from the dead. But don't you worry, guys. God raised Jesus from the dead. He's been very clear about that. He also says that he is a witness of these things. He says that the other apostles are witnesses of these things. Then he says, lastly... He says, everyone who believes in Jesus, believes that Jesus is who He says that He is, believes that Jesus is the promised Messiah, that believes that Jesus is the Savior of His people, everyone who believes that will be saved, will receive eternal life with God, and will have God the Holy Spirit dwell with them. That's the words of this life. 
Jesus is the promised Savior of His people. Jesus was crucified by sinful men. God raised Jesus from the dead. And everyone who believes that will receive eternal life with God the Father. That's the words of this life. We are to speak the words of this life. If you're not bold enough to do so, you need to get on your knees and pray for boldness that God would open your mouth to speak the words of this life. You may need some training. You may need some help to figure out ways to speak the words of this life. But we need to learn how to speak the words of this life. We need to speak the words of this life when it's convenient. We need to speak them when it's not convenient. We need to speak them when an angel clearly tells us to, and we need to speak them even when God feels silent in our lives. Speak the words of life. They are the words of life. Third thing we need to embrace is that we will scramble our accusers. Scramble your accusers. Verses, uh, second half of verse 21 through 25. Again, I encourage you to picture some of these scenes, right? Just kind of picture what would it have been like to be there. So you see the, uh, starting in the second half of verse 21, the high priest comes. Those are with, with him. He's got his entourage with him. He calls together the council, so more people. He brings the senate of the people. And he sends, have these men brought that I put in prison. Have them brought to me. And they come back. Hey, uh, they're not there. I mean, the, the gates, the, the prison doors are closed. There's the guys standing there guarding. That's all in place. But the guys that you put into prison, they're not there anymore. And they're, they're perplexed. What in the world is going on? What must have happened? And then somebody else shows up. We don't even know who it is. But somebody else shows up and says, Hey, hey, those guys that you're looking for that you can't find, that you thought you had securely put in prison, those guys, they're actually preaching in the temple the name that you told them not to preach in. By the way, they've been doing it since daybreak. I don't know what time it is now, but they've been doing it since daybreak. So they brought them not by force, because maybe they started to realize that something supernatural was happening in their midst, and so they're not going to bring them by force, and the people are following the apostles. You see, if we actively serve God and we respond to His commands, we will scramble our accusers. You see, you don't have to cower in fear of those who will disagree with you. You do not have to cower in fear with those who will try to stop you and command you to not preach and proclaim and speak the words of life and to ruin the surprise if you begin to speak the words of life. There will be people trying to stop you. There will be people trying to disagree with you. But we do not have to act in fear of them. We can instead walk in the Lord. When we walk with the Lord, God initiates our actions and the world will struggle to keep up. If you find yourself reacting to the world, you have not yet spent enough time with the Lord trying to figure out what's next. Martin Luther was a man who did this pretty well. He certainly had many flaws if you start to examine his life. 
in what has now been known the, uh, as the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther, he carried out what he believed God was calling him to do. He started conversations that he believed God was causing him to start. And he sent the entire so-called Western uh, Christianity in upheaval for hundreds of years. And I would contend we're still in upheaval trying to figure out everything that was started in the Protestant Reformation. And Martin Luther said this. He's often quoted as saying this. He said, I have so much to do. I shall spend the first three hours of this day in prayer. How often do we do that? We think, oh, i got a lot of stuff to do. i got to get after it. I don't have time for prayer today. I don't have time to read my Bible today. i got all these things to do. Well, if we want to be doing the right things, we need to stop, we need to pause, and we need to pray. What Luther obtained in his rich prayer life Again, had the entire Western world in doctrinal upheaval that I believe continues to this day. Walk with God in this life and you will scramble your accusers. They won't know which way is up. They will not know how to stop the progress of this life. Fourthly, fourth thing we need to embrace in this life, verses 26 through 32, serve God rather than Man. Serve God rather than man. You'll notice in verse 28 that the council, the high priest and the council, they say, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. And yet, here, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching in this name. And you intend to blame us for the death of Jesus. That's a big moment, right? So they've, they were in prison. So they watched Jesus crucified by these guys. And then everything has happened up to this point. They have miraculous signs. Lots of things happening around them. They're imprisoned. They're freed from prison. They're told by an angel to go and speak the words of life. So they get up at daybreak and they start to speak the words of life in the temple. The guys drag them back in front of them. And they're like, look, you have disobeyed us. You've disobeyed us. It's a big moment. It's quite easy for us to sit here and talk about what the right thing to do is. But let's talk about what the right thing to do is. I believe Peter, of course, does the right thing in this passage. But let's talk for a moment. The Bible is very clear that we Christians are to submit to our earthly authorities. It's quite clear. Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, Ephesians 6, if you're like wrestling through this, am I supposed to obey my earthly authorities or not? Again, Romans 13 will help. 1 Peter 2 will help. Ephesians 6 will help. Other places are also pretty clear on this. We are to obey our earthly authorities. However, godly submission to earthly authorities stops when that authority is commanding us to disobey God and or to sin against God. 
We can be confident that the apostles did other things in submission to their authorities because again, they wrote the rest of the New Testament that tells us to submit to our authorities. We can be confident that the apostles paid their taxes. Jesus told them, pay their taxes. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. We can be confident that they did not murder. We can be confident that they did not steal. We can be confident that they obeyed the laws of their earthly authorities and taught others to do likewise, because again, we see it all throughout the New Testament. But at the point where the authority attempts to make themselves, the authorities, equal to or above God, at that point and on that point alone, they must be fearless. The apostles must be fearless and they boldly disobey their earthly authorities. When there is a choice to obey God or to obey men, we must obey God. Most of the time in our lives, there will be an opportunity where you can do both. I would argue most of our life, you will be able to do both. Obey God and the earthly authority, it will line up beautifully. If an earthly authority tells you to do something, you're like, well, this isn't a sin, seems within their realm of authority, you can just go with that. It'll actually absolve you of a lot of stress. You don't have to hem and haul with, well, should I obey this or should I not obey this? Now, you can just obey the earthly authorities. Right up until that point, the earthly authority tells you to sin or tells you to disobey the authority of God. At that point, we must stand like Peter stands and we must say, I will obey God, not man. Is there anything in your life that is like this right now? Where you're obeying men rather than God? If this is you, if you've been told to do something that you know to be sin by an earthly authority, you need to turn from that and you need to obey God. And it may require you to boldly stand before an earthly authority to do so. We must obey God. We must stand firm, stand boldly, and obey God rather than men. The last character we meet in our passage is Gamaliel. And uh, let's read again what he says in verse 35. So he's a member of the council. He's well esteemed. He's a Pharisee. He's not a Sadducee. A little different belief system there. In verse 35, Gamaliel says to the council, men of Israel, he's kicked the apostles outside. He's going to have a little conversation among the council. He says, men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed. All who followed him were dispersed, and it came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census, he drew away some people after him, but he too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men. Let them alone. If this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. It's pretty good advice from Gamaliel, isn't it? It's good advice. Now, it's, a, it's tempting in, uh, in these passages at the beginning of Acts to try to assign, oh, he must have been a Christian. He must have believed in the way. The text doesn't really say that. Uh, 
In fact, I almost get this sense that Gamaliel is, uh, is in a posture of waiting to see what would come of all of this. And he is encouraging others to get into this posture of waiting and seeing what would happen. I have a feeling some of you are here just kind of waiting and seeing. What, what's going on here? What's, what's happening with this Christianity thing? Let me just observe it for a little while. Let me just wait and see and watch and see if this is legit or not. So I decided to write a letter to Gamaliel the day after the scene that we just read. And I trust that it would be helpful for you as well. Dear Gamaliel, I am a follower of the life the followers of Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ. I live nearly 2,000 years in the future, and I would like to report back to you as you take a posture of waiting and observing this life in Jesus Christ. In my day, nearly 2,000 years after your day, there is still a people who follow Jesus of Nazareth as though He is our Savior. Countless times and societies have tried to wipe us off the face of the earth, just like your council attempted to do yesterday. There have been many governments who have made our scriptures illegal and have made attempting to convert people to this life illegal. And yet, we continue. Today, approximately one billion people claim the name of Christ. Christianity has spread from Jerusalem to Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, and it continues to spread today, 2,000 years later. It has spread into the entire Roman Empire. At one point, you'll probably not believe this, but at one point, it was the required religion of the entire Roman Empire after an emperor claimed the name of Christ. But it did not stop there. It continued to spread. I'm actually writing you from a place called America all the way across the Atlantic Ocean from you. The gatherings you see of thousands of people in Jerusalem, those types of gatherings, large and small, are happening all over the world. Here in America, in Africa, in China, in Korea, in India, people all over the world are worshiping this Jesus as though He is the Son of God, as though He is the Son of Yahweh. No one has been able to overthrow this movement of God. It has not failed. It has thrived. In fact, it seems to do the best under a heavy hand of persecution. Safety and security do really weird things to this life. Perhaps that's why the apostles rejoiced after your counsel beat them. Perhaps they remembered when Jesus told them that they would be treated like He was treated. Gamaliel, from my perspective, your encouragement to wait and observe about this life can be over. You can rise up from your waiting and join with us. I pray that you will. What I pray will be a brother in Christ, Brian. So if you are in a posture of waiting, your waiting can be over as well. Rise up from your waiting and watching and join this life. I pray that you will. I love you guys. Let's pray. God, we pray. I know many of us in this room pray.
that you would move people from the sidelines just observing Christianity. God, we pray that you would move them from watching and observing to embracing this life. God, just like with us, it will not happen in our own doing. God, but you must awaken our souls to you. And then we are to respond by turning from our sins and trust in you, place our faith in our only hope of salvation, Jesus Christ. God, I pray for all of us, those of us who are Christians, those of us who are part of this life, that you would move us from seeking comfort and relaxation above all else to seeking you above all else. And God, that just like the apostles, that we'd be willing to do so at all costs. God, we love you. We look forward to what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.